Raise your hand if you have a lake house and you're here. Wow, we have one couple. So my theory, two. All right. So my theory, is other family members using it this weekend? That's why. Okay. All right. So, but my theory holds true. This is, so if someone's not here, those are people that you want to butter up to because they have lake houses for you to use. Not on Memorial Day weekend though, but anyways. Um, You know, Memorial Day weekend, there's a lot of travel that goes on. Even if you're here, I know one family went down to the Milwaukee Zoo and is back today. And one of my favorite things about traveling around Wisconsin is seeing all the slogans for the cities. You know what I'm talking about? Like I came from Bloomer, Wisconsin, which is the rope jumping capital of the world, right? And I love looking at those slogans because they're like some of the goofiest things in the world. Uh, Some of them are actually pretty cool and kind of unique. And so I went online and actually read just probably a hundred of them, and I had to narrow it down. And so these are a couple that I have. And so if you know the answer, uh, say it to the person next to you, okay? And you get a point if you get it right. All right, so would would these be called slogans, taglines, mottos, mottos, mottos? Okay. So the motto of Ashland, Wisconsin. Ashland is way up north. The motto is Ashland Tops, Wisconsin, right? Oh, this one's actually cool. Black Creek, Wisconsin, which I have no idea where that is. is. Where is that in the state? It's near Appleton? Okay. Well, Black Creek is the birthplace of the first organized national baseball team. Did you know that? I had no idea. I mean, I didn't even know where it was, but... Boscobel, did I say that correctly? Okay. It is the birthplace of the Gideon Bible, which I found fascinating. Cornucopia, these crack me up. Cornucopia uh, is Wisconsin's northernmost post office is located in Cornucopia. So that is their claim to fame. Doesn't it make you want to go visit Cornucopia? They have the northernmost post office in Wisconsin. Fox Cities, anyone know the Fox Cities slogan? What's that? Good place to live, close. It is a refreshing change of place. Refreshing change of place. A lot of people flee from the big cities to the Fox cities, and so refreshing change of place. Kakana. Um, <laughs> Purgatory, right? It's the nickname of Kakana. That's my nickname for it because you only pass through it. Anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> it smells, it does. The Electric City. Is, is the nickname for Kakana, the motto. Um, let's see, Pulaski. What is it? Polkatown. Polkatown, okay. Reedsburg. Anyone? Butter Capital of America. Ripon, Wisconsin. I thought this was really interesting. Is the birthplace of what? No. Of the Republican Party. Ripon, Wisconsin is the birthplace of the Republican Party. Sauk City, now this is a claim to fame. If this doesn't make you want to move to Sauk City, nothing does. It is the cow chip throwing capital of Wisconsin. (laughs) Um, Let's see here. Two Rivers, birthplace of what, Andrew Brand? Ice Cream Sunday, that's right. I love this one, Superior, Wisconsin. One of their mottos is, I'm a superior lover. No joke. That's the motto of Superior. And finally, Green Bay. What, there's two mottos I have here. What's one of the mottos? Title Town, right? Does anyone know what the other one is? 
toilet paper capital of the world. That's Green Bay, Wisconsin. So if you're a cheesehead or a toilet head, this is the place you belong. So, but I love looking at those things. They're so fascinating. You can go on Wikipedia, find them all. They're so, they're so fun to see. And the question is, why do towns come up with these taglines, these mottos? Well, they're, they're trying to show why they are unique, right? Why they are unique compared to every other town in the whole world. What makes them special? Today, we're going to look at what makes Christianity unique. You know, there are a lot of religions out there. Christianity is not the only religion. And so the question is, what makes Christianity unique? I went online when I was looking at this, and I found a couple different things. And I like charts and maps and stuff like that. So I just thought I'd share it with you. This is kind of the percentage breakdown of the global uh, religious scheme. And so 32.5% is Christian. 21.5% is Islam, 16% would say non-religious, 14% is Hindu, and that's almost entirely in India. And then you see some other stuff here, Buddhism, 6%, Judaism, 0.2%. Go ahead and go to the next slide. You see here a map of kind of how the faiths are spread out throughout the world. Uh, The red and blue is, uh, the red is Protestant, blue is Catholic, so you see it in North and South America a lot. The green and The brown is Islam. You see that spread throughout the Middle East. But that's kind of the spectrum of religion in the world. And the popular belief is that all religions are the same, right? That we, not that they're all the same, but they all worship the same God. That there is a God that all of us are blazing trails to get to. And we don't see each other, but we're all headed towards the same God. And so the question is, is Christianity unique? And if so, what makes it unique? If you would open up to Genesis chapter 28, I don't have the page number. I think it's around page 22 or something like that in the Red Bible. Is that right? Page 22. Good guess. Um, just to catch you up to speed, there are the, the main character in this passage is a guy named Jacob. And Jacob had just stolen uh, the birthright from his twin brother Esau. His brother Esau wanted to kill Jacob. And so his mother thought, you know what, Jacob, why don't you go away to my daddy's house? You'll be safe there for a while. She talks to her husband Isaac and says, why don't you send Jacob away to find a wife? And so Isaac blesses him, sends him out. And so Jacob sets out from home. For all we know, this is the first time Jacob has ever set out from home. Because he was a homebody. He wasn't a hunter. He stayed in the house. He did things like that. And so Jacob heads out. And this is, um, this is the first night, I think. Um, but this is, this is near the beginning of his journey. As he travels 500 miles by foot to go to Haran, the, the house of his mom. Uh, the house where his mom grew up. Here it is. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba. And went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. The God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west 
and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this text today, we learn more about you. We learn more about our faith and the uniqueness of it, but also how glorious it is, God. Pray that you would reveal to our hearts today your goodness and your grace through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So this this passage was written by Moses, but it wasn't written to tell us the uniqueness of Christianity, okay? But in it, we do indeed see what makes Christianity unique. And actually, we see it in many of the stories. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the the major portion of the sermon, the main points to talk about this passage and what God is doing in this passage, how he relates to Jacob, how he is saving Jacob, what he is doing with Jacob. And then at the end, we'll kind of look and compare it to the other religions and see how is it that Christianity is unique. So let's start by seeing that the Lord pursues the unpursuing. You know, this far in Jacob's life, we have not seen Jacob as a worshiper of the Lord. He is indeed a deceiver, but we don't see him worshiping the Lord. You know, even in this passage, he comes to this certain place, which is an unknown place. It's in the middle of nowhere. That's why it's called a certain place. There's no city, no town. It's just a certain place. And he comes there and he is all alone. And he lays down for the night and there are predators that are both animals and human that are around him, potentially coming. And so he's all alone, afraid. And yet never do we see him cry out to the Lord. Never does he say, Lord, be with me, protect me. And so he, he nowhere in this circumstance, nor even in his previous history, has pursued the Lord. And yet we see the Lord comes to pursue him. The Lord pursues someone who is an unpursuer. Look in verse 12 with me. It says, And he, being Jacob, dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Looking at this passage, there's two things that we need to kind of look at here a little bit to to comment on. First, it says that the Lord stood above it. 
In our minds, we're thinking that the Lord stood above this ladder. And from the top of this ladder, he shouted out to Jacob, Jacob! But as you look at a lot of the commentaries and even the study Bibles, a lot of them agree that this isn't the Lord standing at a distance up in heaven, screaming down, but he's actually standing above him, which is Jacob. And so it seems that the Lord has come down to talk to Jacob. But either way, the Lord has pursued Jacob, even when Jacob was not pursuing him. And we go on to see that the Lord is instrumentally pursuing Jacob, guarding Jacob, protecting Jacob. We see a picture of this, this ladder. Now, the ladder, I don't know if you've ever thought about what does Jacob's ladder look like, but I always pictured kind of this rope ladder, like a safety fire ladder that you throw out a window. And, and, but it probably wasn't something like that at all. It was probably something Jacob was familiar with, probably something like a ziggurat. And if we have a picture, here's a ziggurat. And these ziggurats were made to ascend to heaven. Uh, this is kind of what the Tower of Babel looked like as well. And they built it up to the heavens, you remember? And then God laughed and looked way down at the ziggurat and said, and destroyed it. <laughs> but this is probably more of what that ladder looked like. It was a staircase because there were multiple angels ascending and descending. And I love the fact that it doesn't just say there were angels descending. There were also angels ascending, which means there were angels that were on the earth doing the work and the will of God. And so for this moment in time, the Lord pulls back the veil from Jacob's eyes and lets him see the spiritual reality that he has been blind to his whole life, that God is instrumentally involved pursuing his people and protecting them, both through his own presence, but also through sending of his messengers, his angels coming down and going back up into heaven. You know, it's kind of like when in a wedding, when the groom comes up and he doesn't see his bride all day, right? At least traditionally, he doesn't see his bride all day. And then he's standing at the front and the bride comes in and she comes down and she has this thick veil on so she can barely see where she's walking. And he can't really see who she is. (laughs) Hopefully it's his wife or fiance, right? But so, so she's coming down, this veil's on her face. And when she comes down at the right moment, the veil is lifted back and he gets to see the beauty of his bride. In this way, God pulls back the veil and shows Jacob the spiritual reality that God is absolutely at work in this world, that he is pursuing Jacob. He is pursuing his people. You know, you're here today for a few different reasons. One might be because you have come to pursue God, which is great. One might be because your mom or dad dragged you out of bed or your relatives. You know, you came to visit. You didn't know they were going to bring you to church and you're here today. But all of these are signs that God has been pursuing you. You know, I love sitting down with people, hearing their stories of how they came to faith in Christ. And I hear the same thing over and over and over again, which is God brought this person into my life, brought this circumstance in my life. They took me to this place, this time. God's timing was perfect. I can see it now. And all of those are indications that the Lord has pursued them. And so, yes, we do pursue God, but it's because he has first pursued us. So we see that the Lord pursues the unpursuing. We also see that the Lord lavishes the unlavished. You know, as we read in this passage, we see that that Jacob uses a rock for a pillow to lay down for the night. And you're probably thinking, oh, that's just what they did back then, right? Well, rocks in that time were just like rocks in this time, right? 
They're not comfortable. They're hard. They're jagged. I'm sure he found a smooth stone. But there's nothing comfortable about putting your head down on a stone for the night. And so Jacob would have used a stone for really only two reasons. One is that he had no family or friends to go to, right? He had no one that he could stay with. But the second thing is he had nothing that he was carrying that he could ball up and put for a pillow, right? He didn't have an extra shirt, an extra tunic, an extra whatever that he could ball up. And, and so Jacob was completely impoverished here. As a matter of fact, as we read on, he goes on to pursue a bride and he has nothing to pay the father for the bride price as was custom in the day. And so Jacob has to work seven years to gain a bride. And so Jacob is completely unlavished. He is in complete financial and relational and even spiritual poverty here. And you know, even for us, we come to God spiritually impoverished with no morality of our own to give to him. And yet we see with, as with us, with Jacob, he comes and he lavishes his love upon him. Look with me in verse 13. And I'm going to kind of insert some parts here. It says, And behold, the Lord stood above it, or stood above him, which I think is the right translation, said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And then he says this to landless Jacob. The Lord says, The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And then he says to childless and wifeless Jacob, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then to lonely, scared, fragile Jacob, he continues and says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. You know, Jacob was a devious guy. And he had absolutely nothing to offer to God. You know, God wouldn't look at him and say, wow, look at Jacob. I want him to be one of mine. And yet the Lord lavishes upon him his love and his grace and his mercy. I read a story yesterday of a guy named Sergi Sudev. Um, are, are the Vasilios in here out of curiosity right here? Okay. So this guy's from Moldova. All right. And he was going to school in Moldova. All right. And he was a poor student. Um, he worked as a DJ in a radio, uh, in a, yeah, for a radio station. And he was earning peanuts. Okay. And he was surprised when he got a telegram telling him that his German uncle, whom he had only visited twice in his life, had died. And left him 950 million euros. Okay. Now I have no idea what a euro is. uh, How much it is. I mean it probably is deflating by the moment. Right. But he had 950 million euros. But to put it in perspective. This was the complete budget for the whole. uh, For the whole country of Moldova. And he had equaled that in this inheritance. And he was completely shocked. You see this unlavished college student. Was lavished by this uncle. In the same way, we are lavished by God, even more so than this man. 1 John 3, 1 says, How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Colossians 1 says, God chose to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so we see just with Jacob as with us, God lavishes himself 
on unlavished people. Finally, we see the Lord commits to the uncommitted. So the Lord appears to Jacob in this dream. He pursues him and he appears to him and he makes these promises to him. And Jacob's response is mixed. Some of it's very good. Some of it is very poor, much like our responses to the Lord when we encounter him. And so we look at this. Look in verse 16 with me. He starts in a good spot. It says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome, which is also translated, How dreadful is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, there was nothing special about this spot other than the fact that this was a place that Jacob encountered God. You see, it wasn't enough that his grandpa Abraham encountered God. It wasn't enough that his father Isaac encountered God. Jacob himself had to encounter God for himself. And this was the place that it happened. Many of you have a certain place that is amazing because that is a place where you have encountered God. This is similar to what Jacob is going through. It goes on. So early in the morning, verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it, consecrating it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Now, he takes his stone, which is his pillow, and he sets it up and he pours oil on it. He consecrates it. In a way, this is kind of what an Ebenezer is. You know, we, we sing the song. You know, here I raise my Ebenezer, and you're probably going, where's my Ebenezer at? You know, I don't have anything left. What is an Ebenezer, right? An Ebenezer is a reminder of times where God, you have encountered God, where you have seen the presence of God and the love of God. So if you journal, in a way, that's your Ebenezer to remember your encounters with God. If you wear a cross or something that reminds you of something that God has done, that is your Ebenezer. And so he sets up this Ebenezer as a reminder of his encounter with God. And so this far, Jacob's response is pretty good to God. But now the wheels kind of fall off the track. Um, Jacob goes into making this vow and Vows are not always bad. That's another sermon for another day. But he makes this vow. And in this vow, Jacob adds all these contingencies to following the Lord. Look with me in verse 20. Um, He makes this if-then statement, okay? If God does this, then I will do that. And it's kind of parallel. And so I'm going to insert if a few times because it's parallel. You'll see what I'm saying. Verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go. And if God will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And then this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall become God's house. And then of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. You know, the audacity of Jacob is absolutely amazing, isn't it? Here's this guy, a deceptive guy. He's homeless. He has no one, nothing. He has no money to give. He has no bargaining chip, right? And he's like, God, if you do this, you will be lucky. You will get me, right? See, the only bargaining chip Jacob thought he had was that Jacob thought he was a catch, right? Like God is, would be so lucky if you showed up at church. 
God would be so lucky if you decided to worship him. God would be so lucky if you gave him a tithe, right? That would just make God's day because God is very lucky to have you because you are such a catch, right? This is Jacob's thought process. What should Jacob have done when he encountered the Lord? He should have surrendered right there. He should have said, Lord, all of my life is for you. All of my worship is for you. You see, some of you here today maybe have contingencies. You have been trying to understand Christianity, researching Jesus, but you have these contingencies. Lord, I will worship you if you take care of my debt, right? Lord, I will worship you if you give me a wife or a husband. Lord, I will worship you if fill in the blank. See, these are all good things to ask God, but God is not a negotiator. God is God. (laughs) The Lord is God. And he is worthy of our worship and our praise. He is worthy of our service and our obedience and our complete devotion because he is God. And so you see, Jacob puts these contingencies on his devotion to God. But the amazing thing here is as we go back and we look at the promises of God, the promise for for a land, the promise for a people, the promise for God's presence with him, the promise that Jacob through him will come the blessing to the nations, all those promises that God makes to Jacob, all of them, none of them come with an if. Do you see that? In verses, let's see, I think it's 13 through 15, God makes all these promises to Jacob, and there is not a single if in that in, in those entire verses. Because none of God's promises to Jacob are contingent on his obedience. We see that the Lord pursues the unpursuing, that the Lord lavishes the unlavished, and the Lord commits to the uncommitted. And so how do these things make Christianity unique? How do these things make Christianity different than any other religion on the face of the earth? Well, there's two things here kind of that we can talk about that make Christianity unique. Um, If we actually look at a ziggurat, this is actually a helpful illustration in teaching us how is it that Christianity is unique. You know, these ziggurats were tough to build. (laughs) I mean, as you can imagine, they took decades, sometimes centuries to build. And the reason why people built them in the time of Jacob was they built them so that they could reach to God. You see this place up on the top? That was the place that they were to meet with God, that they were to pray God. God, please bless us. Please come to me, God. And so they would build this ziggurat. And they would spend all this effort so that they could somehow make a pathway to God. So somehow they could, they could create a stairwell where God would take notice of them, where there could be this mediation between them and God. And yet, With Christianity, we do not have to build a staircase because the staircase is given to us. John 1, Jesus talks about this. Jesus is in his ministry. Philip is convinced that Jesus is the son of God. And he goes to Nathaniel. You can follow along with me on the screen. John 1, 45. Oh, maybe you can't. There there we go. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, 
Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we have no idea what he was doing under that fig tree, right? But Jesus knew. It's almost a little bit, you can picture like Jacob. He was all alone and the Lord saw him. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then hear this verse, verse 51. This is kind of where it all comes together. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Do you see that? Jesus is saying, Jacob's ladder is me. I am the mediator between heaven and earth. And so this is not something that you have to create. You don't have to create a path or a way to get to God. I am the way. Matter of fact, later in John, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through me. And so we see that Jesus is the ladder. The second thing, the second thing we see in which makes Christianity unique is that when you look at this ziggurat again, how did people get to God? Well, they had to climb these stairs, right? And they made it big because they wanted to reach up to heaven and they would go up these stairs to reach up to God. And it was a lot of effort and they would go up and they would get up there and they would plead, God, please help me, Lord. In every religion except Christianity, there is a ladder to climb. There are moral standards to climb in order to achieve God's blessing. So if you take Judaism, there's 10 commandments that you must follow to receive the blessing of God. If you take Islam, there are five pillars of the faith. It's like the steps, right? You have to go up them to get to where God would maybe bless you. But in Christianity, God says, I know you won't make it up those stairs. (laughs) I know maybe you'll take one, two steps up, but then you'll fall three or four back, right? And we end up like Jacob on the ground alone. See, the difference between Christianity and every other religion, in every other religion, we must ascend the stairs to get to God. But in Christianity, God descends the stairs to come to us. Do you see that? God comes to you right where you are in the midst of your sin, in the midst of the mire, in the midst of the clay. And he says, I have come to pursue you, to commit to you, to love you. You see, God will know that we will not be faithful to him. He knows that we will not pursue him like we should. And he pursues us in the midst of our sin. See, the major difference between Christianity and every other religion is that in every other religion, you have to at least be partial savior in your salvation. You have to climb these steps, these moral codes to get to God. But in Christianity, God is the only savior. And we receive the benefits of that. This is put well in the famous hymn, and I'll close with this, Rock of Ages. And it summarizes this in this way. It says, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray.
Lord, (laughs) we are so thankful, God, that you have pursued us, Lord. That that we don't achieve a relationship with you, that we don't have an encounter with you by, by climbing these moral stairs to get to you, Lord God. But that you have come to us in our sin and in our brokenness. That at the cross, Jesus came down and he died for our sin. Saving us to yourself, pursuing us and loving us, Lord God. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has just felt like religion is too hard. That they would see the breath of fresh air that Christianity is, Lord God. That you are the only true God and that you do all the saving because we can do none of it, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, that you have had mercy on us. That you have poured your grace upon us, Lord. And that you have saved us, not when we were perfect, but when we were sinners. We praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.